Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Content Bookstore. Located in the heart of historic Northfield, Minnesota, the Content Shop is bright, warm, and welcoming to readers of all ages, interests, and walks of life. Drop by or shop online at contentbookstore.com. And we're brought to you by the Ashland University Low Res MFA, where our accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Expand your writing practice and refine your craft within the supportive community of Ashland University's Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. Have you noticed how we put people in boxes? We categorize them. We have codes, sometimes written but often unwritten, that allow us to decide how or what a person stands for or is. The football player doesn't write love poetry. The student who's brilliant at AP physics couldn't also be a cheerleader or a bowling instructor or work in a nursing home. We figure folks stay in their lane. Sometimes our categories can be useful. We may assume right about somebody's politics or their commitment to organic farming. But speaking with today's guest, I thought about how this categorization often makes us miss out. Writer Ben Percy writes comic books and science fiction novels, but he also writes love letters and admires feminist short stories and has written some of the most beautiful reflections on marriage and parenting that I've ever read. He dresses like a lumberjack, sounds like Wolverine, and he's passionate about funding for the arts and about his kids having more strong female role models to look up to in books and movies. Plus, he's wicked smart. I am so thankful for our conversation. Let me tell you more about Ben. Benjamin Percy is the author of six novels, three short story collections, and a book of essays. His fiction and nonfiction have been read on National Public Radio, performed at Symphony Space, and published by Esquire, GQ, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Tin House, and more. He writes comics for Marvel, DC, and Dynamite, and is known for his work on X-Force, Batman, Wolverine, Green Arrow, and more. He co-wrote the feature film Summering, which recently made its debut at the Sundance Film Festival. His audio series Wolverine, The Long Night, won the iHeartRadio Award for Best Scripted Podcast. And his honors include an NEA Fellowship, a Whiting Award, two Pushcart Prizes, and inclusion in the Best American Short Stories. Ben lives in Minnesota with his family. Ben Percy, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you for having me on. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. We frequently welcome creative folks to the show to talk about their most recent project, a book, a play, a film. However, since you and I met in July and scheduled this interview a few weeks ago, I feel like your most recent projects pile is ever-changing. You work in film and television and podcasts and comic books and novels, and that's just the stuff I know about. So rather than only singing your praises for any one of these items, I thought today's conversation could be about the biz, if that's okay with you. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about all of it. Yeah, let's take a look at the opportunities and costs of the writing life. So uh, why don't we just start with your story, Was 10-year-old or 15-year-old Ben Percy always hell-bent on becoming a writer? No, not at all. But I grew up a voracious reader. Almost every night, 
when my family was not watching Star Trek The Next Generation or Kung Fu The Legend Continues, we were <laughs> sprawled out in the living room reading together. And my mom was probably reading a historical novel. And my dad was probably reading a science fiction novel. And my sister was, you know, probably gobbling up a book on physics while I was reading a fantasy or horror novel in all likelihood. And that's what I specialized in was those mass market uh, paperbacks with embossed titles. You know, if they had a skeleton or a dragon on the cover, all the better. <laughs> and we used to make a pilgrimage a few times a year to Powell's Books. Amazing so store. I moved around quite a bit as a kid. But one constant is that my grandparents were in Portland. So we'd go up and over the Cascade Mountains and we'd visit my grandparents, but we would also stop by Powell's. And Powell's is a, a holy site. You know, it takes up an entire city block in downtown Portland and is home to th not thousands, millions of books. Uh, and I would build a dark tower of, of paperbacks whenever I visited to ration out over the months <laughs> to come. And so I, you know, spent a lot of time in make-believe. I spent a lot of time living in other worlds. Uh, and growing up in a rural area, sometimes that was my, you know, sort of rabbit hole, survival outlet. So living this imaginary life, I guess it was no surprise that I had an imaginary profession in my mind. I wanted to become Indiana Jones. Uh, I actually <laughs> went on several archaeological digs uh, in high school. I joined up as a high schooler with the University of Oregon to excavate a Paiute village in the Christmas Valley region of Oregon. I worked with the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, scouting out rock art sites. I applied to college with the idea that I would pursue an anthropology major. And uh, just eventually that dream sort of dissolved. You know, I realized that Indiana Jones was you know, that <laughs> promise of it was not true, despite the fact that I had a fedora uh, and, and a bullwhip that I would snap Coke cans off a of fence post with. You know, I had kind of an existential crisis when I went to college. I realized that what I had been planning on doing, I wasn't actually going to be doing. And I thought about dropping out for a while. And there were a few different things contributing to that decision, but I kind of had an existential crisis. I retreated to the wilderness. I worked for Glacier National Park. And during this time, I was keeping a journal for the first time. When I had approached my college counselor, he was one of the professors who had failed me that first semester. <laughs> I, I went to Brown. So I went from rural Oregon, a graduating class of 14 students, to the urban East Coast, Ivy League, and was not prepared. I wasn't prepared academically. I wasn't prepared emotionally. Total culture shock. Anyways, I was on academic probation my first semester, in part because I just signed up for all these ridiculous classes, like digital security, when I didn't even know how to code computers. <laughs> and so that guy was, that professor was my, my counselor. And when I asked him, like, what I should do, he's like, well, you know, some people just they aren't cut out for college. Uh, so as I walked out of his office, he called out to me and he said, you know, it's really weird that you're doing so poorly because uh, you wrote the best application essay I've ever read. Wow. And so he did a disservice to me by being a total jerk, but he also, that, that final comment of his, it stuck with me. And so I started thinking about writing and I started keeping that journal and I started writing snippets of fiction and poetry and songs and 
and love letters, poems, because there was somebody at Glacier National Park. I was the gardener there, which I know is a weird thing to be at a national park. They have a gardener there? Gardener at Many Glacier. <laughs> and uh, at that lodge, there was a waitress who I took a fancy to. And and anyways, uh, I was writing her all these love letters and such. And, and one day we were watching the sunset over the Rockies, and she was like, you should be a writer. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I, eventually, I married her. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I was in creative writing classrooms thereafter, my first workshops, and just like there was no question in my mind. Uh, I was all in from that first semester, all in. I should have opened with a confession, which is that I did not read comic books growing up, except for maybe one that I got in like a dusty box of cereal, like a Veronica and Archie comic, you know, that kind of thing. But I've, yeah, I've, heard you, yeah, I've heard you talk before about those those spinner racks at the end of the grocery store aisle where you found your comic books. And I think there was also another rack nearby there. Girls could read comic books and can read comic books in 100%. But I don't feel like you and I are about the same age. I don't feel like growing up, that was the spinner rack that I was directed to. You know, I was reading the Sweet Valley High. You know, I'm getting book number one and seven and my girlfriend's going to get eight and four and we're going to trade across and like, you know, fold down the dirty pages of the VC Andrews books. You know, I'm, I'm sometimes alarmed to think about <laughs> the things yeah, I, read. I read. That stuff too. I read that stuff too. <laughs> um, I mentioned this because we came up through these, you know, traditions, but um, when I got to college, I didn't know there were different kinds of writing. I thought books were books were books kind of like you're describing. I'd, Never occurred to me that we weren't going to learn Tom Clancy at, you know, at college. Um, did you learn to read like a writer before you were a writer? Like I'm hearing the, the names of the folks you read. And I remember those were in the syllabus in my class and syllabi in the classes I took as well. But when did you make a shift between like reading like the reader you were and reading like the writer you became? It was almost instantly when I stepped into that first creative writing classroom that I began to sort of engage strenuously with style and map out just paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, the way in which scenes were rolling out, the way in which emotions were conveyed. My pages looked encased in barbed wire, everything that I read. And I was a notoriously slow reader as a result because I would read a story, then I would reread it, then I would reread it again. I'd just be literally mapping out things on a macro and micro level. That was, you know, just a bit of engineering uh, that entered my life as soon as I realized I wanted to figure out what was going on underneath the hood of all these stories to make them affect me emotionally. I think I've heard you talk about that as sort of a left brain thinking exercise applied to an endeavor that we often think about as being right brained, right? That I'm just going to yeah, sit yeah. down and, and whatever comes. Kind of comes. like being pragmatic and a dreamer at the same time. You know, like sometimes when I'm caught up in the flow of a story, I'm not thinking about that stuff. Maybe it's ingrained in me instinctually at this point, but it's certainly something that I think about when rereading and when editing. So in retrospect, or it's also another thing that I think about when pre-planning. Uh, material. So I'm thinking about all those algorithms, I guess you could say, that inform the what sometimes feels like the dream of storytelling. Yeah. How do you plan a story? If we were going to write a story right now, how would you do it? So with short stories, I tend to be more impressionistic, allow myself to improvise. 
because a short story, you know, is a few days of work to get the first draft out. And if I have to start over, no big deal. But a novel is years of work. So I've written four failed novels. I wrote four failed novels before publishing one. I think most writers say the same thing. And everybody's got stuff in the drawer that didn't work out. And and so the first novel that I actually published uh, was one that I had mapped out. And that was because, well, two things informed that decision. One, when I was in grad school, I realized I was having some trouble with something I feel like is one of my stronger points now, and that's plot. So I took a short story writer who I thought was excellent at plot, and that's Flannery O'Connor. And I read and I read and I read and I read her short stories over and over and over again so that I was emotionally detached from them. And then I would map them out paragraph by paragraph. I would make a blueprint and I would write a story based on that blueprint that bore no resemblance to the original. For example, if in paragraph one, character A is introduced via dialogue as jealous and spiteful, I would try to introduce in my first paragraph a character and reveal their inner weakness that would be central to the story via dialogue. Or if in the second paragraph, the setting implied the tone, the thematics of the story, like maybe she was describing a neighborhood that was ruined, I would describe, you know, something like a, a mountain line or something that looked that implied revenge or grief or whatever. So I would just sort of t figure out what the cues were that added up to the mechanics of plot. I did that on like three different stories and it just clicked. And I was like, I get it now. So anyways, I realized here I am four novels deep. I failed on all of them and I had to teach a novel writing course. This is at UW Stevens Point where I was teaching at the time. They asked you to teach a novel writing course, but you hadn't published a novel yet. Teach a novel writing course, but I haven't published a novel. I felt like a fraud. And so I did the same thing that I did in grad school. I was like, all right, I'm going to take all these novels I really admire, and I'm going to reread them and reread them and reread them. I'm going to map them all out. So I did that. And I taught the class on different types, forms of novels. I don't think it's any coincidence that that very same semester I sold my first novel, The Wilding, to Grey Wolf Press. And thereafter, I just feel like I have to have an outline out of superstition. It's sort of like Dumbo's Magic Feather. You know, Dumbo can fly. Is that the one the, that makes him fly? He thinks it does. He doesn't actually. Oh, but it doesn't. Make. That's right. That's right. So the outlines sort of feel like that. And I'll usually start outlining, you know, a year to two years in advance of writing a novel. I also want to have, I don't refer to them as so much as blueprints, as constellations, because I don't know everything that happens, but I know the brightest stars. And if you think about a constellation, right, and the brightest stars, there's the vacancy of space between them. And we fill in with our imagination how those stars become a scorpion in the sky or whatever, or a bowman. So in the same way, like I know, okay, this is going to be my midpoint reversal. This is going to be my rock bottom moment. This will be a climactic moment towards the end. Here's the moment that triggers the character's uh, investment in the story, blah, blah, blah. I'll know those bright moments, but then it's, it's no fun if you know everything. I want to give myself room to make some shit up along the way. <laughs> so that's usually how I approach novels. You know, comics are very much the same and very different at the same time. Um, by that, I mean, I have to I have to outline because you don't work for Marvel and not tell them what you're going to do. I think a lot of writers really kind of buck up against the idea of constraints, right? You, you hear that, oh, I can't, can't be bogged down. But I, I heard... Shonda Rhimes of, of Shondaland fame talk once about what it was like to write for network television, where there were just some unsayable words. There were, you know, you, you couldn't say that, that you had some constraints and you had time constraints. You had to have room for commercials you, that that sometimes those constraints 
actually forced her to be more creative than just having a wide open prairie in front of yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Terrence Hayes, when he's talking about poetry, he talks about the difference between free verse poetry and form poetry, form poetry being a villanelle or a sonnet or a sestina. He says the difference between free verse and form poetry is the difference between breakdancing and breakdancing in a straitjacket. And it's cool if you can breakdance, but it's badass if you can breakdance in a straitjacket. And comics writing or TV writing or film writing is breakdancing in a straitjacket. You have constraints in a screenplay. By page 15, you need to have the inciting incident. By page 25, you need to have the doorway moment that bridges the gap between act one and act two. And, you know, it can seem conforming, but the thing that I always tell literary writers, because they're the ones who get all grumpy about this in particular, you know, when I visit campuses or when I teach at festivals uh, or residencies or whatever, they're always, oh, tut, tut, I shall not ever (laughs) use a constraint. And I'm like, well, dudes, like, look at, you know, look at, look at yourself. Like you are essentially built of the same stuff. You know, the general arrangement of organs and bones are roughly the same between you and Cher and Tiger Wood <laughs> and your mail carrier Susie and, or whatever else. It's like, and yet we're all so different, right? And you have these bones, in other words, these structural bones that generally speaking, make up a story, whether it's a novel, whether it's a screenplay, obviously there are differences, but the differences are more subtle than people might expect. And if you know those standards, then you're free to break them as well or to reinvent them. I mean, Picasso did not begin his life as an artist drawing Cubist, painting Cubist. You know, he started drawing realism, painting realism, and then made that leap. And it was only because he had those fundamentals in mind that he was able to be taken seriously as somebody who was groundbreaking. Yeah, you got to learn the rules before you break them, they always say. I I love to start sentences with and and but, but I also still have to remember the nun who told me not to do that. Oh, yeah. I had some bad experiences <laughs> with nuns. Who hasn't? Um, so then what's what was your fit, your big break? So I, we left you in a field with with the girl you wanted to marry. And then there's a novel. Is the novel your big break? You were teaching novel writing before that. What When you look back on the jump from guy who writes sentences that nobody reads but me to working writer, like what's what was a break in there? So I started off, you know, publishing in journals. And does anybody read even the most famous of journals? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure. But, you know, I work my way up to places like the Paris Review. I worked my way up to glossy magazines like Esquire. I later became a contributing editor at Esquire and GQ and Time. And and so everything was incremental, right? And in the same way, like I published a book of short stories with a university press. That was my first book. Then I published a book of short stories with a small press, Grey Wolf. Then I published a novel with a small press, Grey Wolf. Then, you know, things started to heat up. Everything's incremental. And I got to a point where I had pitched a comic series to Vertigo. And it was uh, Vertigo, if you don't know it, it's like the HBO of comics. It doesn't exist anymore. I pitched this 30-issue comic series to Vertigo, and it was a horror series. And they're like, dude, uh, this is cool, but you've never written a comic before. We're not going to hire you (laughs) to write a 30-issue original series. But, you know, stay in touch. 
anyways, my agent was like, this idea is really cool. What if we do it as a novel instead? And so, you know, I reframed it. I wrote out about 70 pages of it. I included that outline and uh, sold it and sold it for, you know, a considerable amount of money so that I was able to then take a step, you know, step back from, from teaching. And I, I enjoy teaching. It makes me feel like I'm earning my oxygen. But anyways, I was able to go full-time at the keyboard. And I still teach in that, like, I'll teach at a writer's conference every now and then. And that makes me sort of feel like I'm tapped back in uh, to whatever I've been missing. Uh, but yeah, Red Moon was my big break. And I don't just write novels. You know, the way that I make a living as a writer is I write comics, as you mentioned before. Or I write for TV. That's how I get my health insurance or movies. And, and yeah, uh, I'm, a, I'm a hustler. I think I heard you say once that success, at least for you, has almost always risen out of failure. Do you still believe that? Success has almost always come out of failure, rejected from DC, rejected from Vertigo. Uh, there's sort of a bivalent success story there. And then I kept submitting, kept submitting, kept submitting, kept submitting. I think I submitted 47 pitches to DC. So from 2009, that's when I started. 2009 all the way to 2014. 2014 is when I finally got a yes. And that yes was for Detective Comics, was for Batman. So a super auspicious way to debut. But what people don't know is that I had failed all that time before. And what they also didn't know, and what DC did not know, is that Batman story that I wrote, which kicked off my career in comics, that Batman story was a failed Hollywood script. So I'd sent the script all over Hollywood, every studio had passed, and then DC was finally like, okay, okay, stop bothering us so much, Ben Percy. We have a two-issue opening for Batman. Like, what, what do you got? And I was like, hmm. And I took that screenplay, which I really loved and believed in. It was just like ridiculously expensive. It would have cost like $400 million to make. And I didn't <laughs> think about like, oh, maybe, you know, my first screenplay should be something that costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 million to $5 million. It's like, oh no, here's this 500 million blockbuster. We're going to blow up the Empire State Building and then we're going to crash. Exactly. Yeah, too expensive. So, but comics, right? Your uh, special effects budget is unlimited. So I took the idea, I pulled the main character out, I put Bruce Wayne in, and boom, sold it. And soon enough, I've got like a Green Arrow gig, writing Green Arrow for 52 issues. I've got Teen Titans, blah, blah, blah. The, the idea is that like, you're going to encounter wreckage in your career constantly if you're in the arts. Are you able to recognize the turn that can lead you to success out of, that comes out of it? So I hear your handling of failure seems to be repurposing, shifting, maybe this 40, 40 book series is actually a novella that, 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 that you are believing in the material enough to keep sending it out there, perhaps in a different form. Constantly. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. I'm always finding repurposing things. And, you know, it's just, it's sort of like sheer cussedness too. Like <laughs> if I have a superpower, it's like, being cussed. <laughs> so, that's, that's a Midwestern that's, you know. grandfather term if I've ever heard it. <laughs> so those doubt those doubt arrows don't pierce your thick skull. No, of course I've like got you know, get really angry or I get sad. But then like I'm very even though I am a dark hearted guy and that I write really weird Stephen King-ish stuff like I'm a very optimistic person and 
that's just lucky for me to have that sort of brain chemistry. So I'm always thinking like, okay, there's a way to make this work. How do we do this? And so that has come in very handy in an industry that is really defined by failure, defined by the word no. You've probably been told no more than you've been told yes. My career is defined by the word no, but you got to have cussedness. Yeah, people people wouldn't probably know that looking at you, right? There's a pile of comic books and novels and, and other things next to your name. But for every one of those, there's 10, 20, 50 no's. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, you also wrote something about that you've thrown away hundreds or even thousands of pages, and sometimes you need to throw pages away, and sometimes you need to keep them. How do you know which page is which? When to throw it away and when to keep it? Sounds like a line from The Gambler. When do I know? When do I hold it and when do I fold it? I talk about The Gambler a lot. It's one of my favorite songs. I, I feel like everything song. you need to know, everything you need to know about a career in creative writing is in that song, uh, especially if you're working across different mediums. And yeah, I mean, it's the thing is, it doesn't really matter if you throw something away, even if you think it's brilliant, because there's always more timber coming down the trail. I love the idea. You call it a cemetery folder. Yeah, yeah. Ann Patchett has something like that when she writes, too. What's a cemetery folder? I don't really use this anymore, but it used to be a good practice for me because it allowed me to throw things away psychologically. So if I had a novel that I was working on, I would have a folder in that novel called The Cemetery. And in it, I would put all the things that I was cutting and I'd organize them, you know, into different tombstones, I guess you could say within the folder, you know, I'd organize them into documents like lost characters, descriptions of nature, blah, blah, dialogue scenes, blah, 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 whatever. And it just felt good to have like a place for it because once you start saving multiple drafts, whatever was in draft, you know, 13 versus 30, like that stuff, you're not going to find it again. Uh, But having a place for it, like a compost heap, a cemetery, whatever you want to call it, uh, is psychologically freeing. And, you know, sometimes when I would start a new project, I would go through the cemetery and sort of revisit some of those old pals and be like, you know, that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good description of a mountain. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Plug it into the next book. Uh, but then, you know, it'd probably end up in the next cemetery as well. I like that idea. It does give you permission to let go and be less precious about what it is you've written. Um, Can we talk for a moment about Jaws? Sure. So I've attended lots of writer's talks. I'm kind of a junkie. I'm a sucker for listening to a creative person talk about how they create. But you are the first person who's ever convinced me that the key to plotting a successful novel might just lay in making a study of Jaws, the book that was later turned into a movie that terrified beach-going children like myself. 
everywhere. Um, will you sell me on the the merits of Jaws? Well, yeah, I love that movie. I've seen it. I, I countless when I say countless times, I, it's true. Like I don't multiple times a year I watch it, and and I just think it's brilliant. I think it's a perfect movie. I think it's a kind of a lousy book. That's one of the few cases where you can say like definitively the movie is worlds better than the novel. Think about the stakes of a character, right? The stakes of a situation. You have in Jaws the character of Chief Brody, played by Roy Scheider. He's our main character. I mean, in a way, it becomes an ensemble by the end that really focuses on these three dudes in the ocean. But if you think about him as the main character, you've got familial stakes, right? He is in the novel and in the film completely dedicated to his kids. And these categories sort of bleed together, but tied into that is are the professional stakes and the financial stakes of the situation. He is new to Amity Island as the chief of police, and he is immediately in danger of losing his job and upsetting his, his family's life as a result. And um, potentially they're going to be bereft because of this. He's also, you know, familial sense, like terrified for his children, because on several occasions, they're scared just about what's going on, but also in danger. Uh, there's that one scene where his boy is in the harbor uh, sailing about. And while everybody else is distracted on the shore because somebody has been pulling a prank, you know, the person had like the fake shark shark's head attached to theirs and they were snorkeling around and everybody, you know, leapt out of the water and went crazy as a result like no attention was paid to the harbor where his son was Ugh. and the real shark went in there in the meantime and almost killed him I know. So he's got familiar stakes he's also got marital stakes romantic stakes because in the book his wife is actually having an affair yeah his wife has an affair with the richard dreyfus character with hooper right which makes their time on the ocean even more tense but with that, you know, those romantic stakes are sort of like gendered stakes. You know, if you think about it in sort of like traditional archetypes, this guy is trying to reclaim his masculinity by slaying a giant white penis. <laughs> and and uh, he's trying to best the others on the boat, you know, as well. And And, you know, there's political stakes. Like, here's this mayor who's like pressuring the chief of police hard like we have to open these beaches because amity island financial stakes makes all of its money during the tourist season if we can't have people going in the water nobody's going to come we're going to be broke uh and i'm probably going to get booted from office uh so anyways you see all these different stakes I've, I've laid out like six of them already and they all are sort of cycled through the story almost at 10 page intervals you know, you'll focus on one thing, you focus on the next thing, you focus on the next thing, and it just cycles through them in an almost cylindrical way so that you're constantly anxious about one thing or the other until at the very end, they all converge in this moment of climactic action. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing it a whole different way since I first heard you talk about Jaws and the, the notion that what you think is it's a book about a guy chasing a shark and you forget all the other crud that he had to deal with in order to even be on that boat, terrified, chasing that shark. Yeah. I've been talking about midpoint reversals too. One other little nugget from Jaws, like midpoint reversal in a story is where your character has a plan and the plan doesn't work. The plan fails. And that's the midpoint reversal is when the plan shifts. The midpoint reversal is almost always accompanied by a change in scenery as well. In Jaws, 
They're trying all these different things like shut down the beaches or send out people into the harbor, into the ocean to hunt the shark. And let's bait the shark. Let's toss dynamite in the water. Let's post lifeguards. Let's da 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 da. None of it works, right? So what has to happen? Chief Brody, who critically is afraid of water, so he has to face his worst weakness, has to go out on the ship with uh, Richard Dreyfus Hooper, and with Robert Shaw, plays Captain Quint, right? There's that change in scenery that accompanies the exact center point of the film. Yeah. No, I I, I can't get Jaws and, and these these shifts out of my head for how a story is shaped. It's It's been blowing my mind ever since then. Everything you need to know about fiction is in Jaws. <laughs> so I've been in a, a, I've lived a lot of places, so I've been in a number of book clubs. And I will say, um, Suburban women do not read enough sci-fi. I'm just going to say that. Ladies, I don't think we're doing our part. There's plenty of women who read them, but the book clubs I've been in, we're not reading enough sci-fi. And I'm just going to put this out there that I came to the Comet Cycle books, this trilogy that I think could be, as I've heard you talk about, might could be dozens of books. But I bought them as an early Christmas present for my husband. I bought the first two. And then I ended up reading them myself. And there was certainly science and meteors and mysteries. But I think what I love most about your sci-fi novels is the humanity. I expected monsters and sure they're there. But you're writing about the trials and tribulations of parents and children and people striking out on their own to make their way in the world. And it was just so beautifully, recognizably human to me. Not to diss other genre writers, but do you think that sometimes they forget that alien outer space robot monster books also need to be human? At the end of the day, if there's not a human heart beating at the center of your story, nobody's going to care. So it has to be sort of like character first. No matter how high concept your idea, it has to be character first. Yeah. I mean, in the unfamiliar garden, there really are mushrooms from outer space. But what I'm attracted to is the fact that you wrote something beautiful about what it was like for Nora and Jack to rely on one another in the early days of raising a child. And that, oh, gorgeous. About the thing and the other thing, right? That's the really simple way to put it. But yes, you've got, you know, alien fungus. Great. But, you know, here's a, car- a story that's broken down, sort of like Fates and Furies, if you know the Lauren Groff novel, where it's like a him, her, him, her, him, her story. So it's in his perspective, it's in her perspective. It's in his perspective, it's in her perspective. They're divided. They're divided, we learn, because they lost their child. On the night that the meteor shower happened, they lost their kid. And they were already having some difficulties, and that cleavage between them just broke them wide apart. But now, right, he is a university professor, he's a biologist, he's a mycologist, and there's a new fungus that's popping up that he's researching. And then here you have his ex-wife, Nora, and she's a police detective in Seattle, and she's investigating a series of murders. And they're going to be brought together, first professionally, and then emotionally again. And then there's the possibility that arises that their daughter is actually still alive. And all these things result in, by the end of the novel, a convergence of point of view where it's no longer he said, he said, she said, he said, she said, but it's they. The end of the book is a they. It's a collective perspective. And as a result of that, that union, I wanted to have, you know, as a sort of thematic backdrop to fungus itself, which is a symbiotic organism. Yeah, it's bananas how good you are at this, man. These were supposed to be Christmas presents for my husband, but I started flipping through. I'm like, well, let me just sit down with this. And then before I know it, I've read the whole book. So, you know, husband, I'm still going to wrap it and give it to you, but it's just the pages are riffled. (laughs) 
too bad for you, husband. <laughs> oh, I could talk books with you all day, but I'm going to wrap because we always do a few things at the end here. So I like to end with icebreakers. Think of this as like, I don't know, seventh grade camp. So this first part is just uh, multiple choice. Just pick one, okay? Dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? That's tough, but mountains. Batman or Wolverine? Uh, Wolverine. <laughs> but Batman's still awesome. Uh, Lord of the Rings or Big Trouble in Little China? Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> I mean, I can extensively quote both. I guess I'll go L-O-T-R just because it's a more expansive universe. I'll give you that. You were one of the first people I've ever seen to write about Big Trouble in Little China, which was pl played a formative part in my younger years. Just that whole watching stuff you old, probably shouldn't have. Burton and Pork Chop <laughs> Express. Coming to you on a dark and stormy night. I love it. Oh, okay, Um, let's see. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Neither. I wake up at 7, I go to bed at 11. Just a regular person in the middle there. Right in the middle. This is a bit of an onomatopoeia question. Which do you favor more, the word growl or the word squelch? <laughs> uh, I guess I'm naturally inclined to growl. <laughs> Although I do like to hear you say the word squelch. Squelch. <laughs> um, that word works for me Close in a number. Yeah, it works in a number of just when you're looking for a word. Just squelch. I don't have a low enough voice. You do. Squelch. <laughs> are you a risk taker or the person who always knows where the band-aids are? Risk taker. Pragmatic risk taker. <laughs> I mean, you can't be a writer, full-time writer, and not be a risk taker. <laughs> um, If I was, oh, this is a fill in the blank now here. If I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a. Uh, Pixar villain. The voice of or actually live in the cartoons of? Both, method acting. Yeah, I would have put you on a stage. I, I mean, I, I still would, but that's where I would. When I listen to the Wolverine podcast. I'm coming for you, Buzz and Woody. <laughs> when I listen to the Wolverine podcasts for just a moment before I heard credits, I wondered if you would be in there somewhere. It's yeah, listening yeah, for your voice. Give me a few cameos, but then they thought, you sound too weird. People would be like, what the hell was that? I can't just be like a guy at a bar. I'm like a monster. I'll, I'll still keep listening for you. All right, this is another fill in the blank. Uh, what is something quirky that people don't know about you? A like, a love, a pet peeve? Your imagination's all on the page. So I'm trying to think what we would know about you, the guy. Yeah, I'm unloading a constant. I don't know what you wouldn't know. I'm not. I'm a pretty boring person. I just work. Well, that in itself is actually kind of interesting. Uh, here's something weird. I mean, you, people would know this if they've actually read my through my backstory. But like uh, the tallest, one of the tallest trees in North America is located just outside of Eugene, Oregon. And for an assignment, I climbed to the very top of it. Uh, I had a crossbow up to the first branch, which was several hundred feet up, and then I climbed it with a guide to accompany me. And then I spent the night in the tree in a hammock. Uh, so 250 feet. What? And I, I also, yeah. Why did you do that? Uh, for an article. I don't think I read that one in my research. I'm going to look for that one. Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Was it terrifying? Did you sleep at all? I'm not afraid of heights at all. I mean, I, I slept at 250 feet. So, it's, you know, you look over the hammock. It's a long way down. At one point, I woke up in the middle of the night and there was just an owl staring at me on the branch. <laughs> That's bananas. No mosquitoes at 250 feet. 
I guess not. Hey, what do you love about where you live? Uh, Minnesota is green. I mean, when I say that, I'm saying you look at a map and there's a lot of public land. As opposed to when I was living in Iowa, it's almost all private land. So there's a lot of public land, there's a lot of forest to explore. It's also an interesting sort of ecotone, meaning there's a, three different ecosystems that converge here. You know, you've got the deciduous forest, you've got boreal forest, and then you've got plains. The northern section is the most interesting to me, probably because I grew up in Oregon and prefer evergreen forests. But that's also where, where Lake Superior is, which is an inland sea. You know, it's the greatest freshwater source in the world. Um, and so I love all those things when it comes to the natural geography about the place. I'm also a, you know, a winter guy and there's no better winter than Minnesota's, but it also is just like a very progressive state that also believes in artists and it has the number one arts funding of any state. I believe it's second only to New York for publishing. We have Grey Wolf, Milkweed, Rain Taxi, Coffee House Press. We have the Loft Literary Center, dozens of indie bookstores. There's great theaters. There's great music venues. So it's like, it's a pretty awesome place to live, actually. That is one of the best answers I've ever heard for Minnesota. I've only talked to one other Minnesotan, but she's probably my other great... Like, you guys should be on billboards, and there's a whole campaign, I think, for Minnesota. No, Minnesota tourism. We don't want them. I was about to here. say, though, because that was my next thing, is I don't think Minnesota wants us to know it's there. Bunch of damn Californians <laughs> moving out of here, <laughs> trying to steal our water. <laughs> you guys have enough of it. Share. Um, what are some of your favorite books? Well, this is a question that could go on forever, too. Um, but, you know, I'm kind of obsessed with Cormac McCarthy, very excited about his two new books launching this fall. You know, The Road, it's probably the scariest novel I've ever read, maybe because I read it for the first time anyway, right after my son was born and it just hit a nerve. It sits different when you're a parent, that's for sure. That book sure does. Yeah, no, it truly like physically affected me reading it. And, and uh, you know, I love Shirley Jackson. She's one of my high priest, high priestesses. Um, what she does for the horror genre, you know, is is imbue it with that literary sensibility, like that deep characterization and that filigreed language. Um, I love writers like Neil Gaiman and Octavia Butler and Ursula K. Le Guin for the way in which they write about fantasy and sort of transgressive fantasy. And, and also just their literary technique is, you know, something to feel marvel over you know you could pluck any sentence out of any one of their stories and frame it and hang it on the wall and invite your neighbors over uh and say like look at that sentence and they'd say damn so those are just a few those are just a few writers who i think are amazing how about some favorite movies again like i could just keep going but rocky obviously for spiritual reasons <laughs> jaws godfather the Th john carpenter's the thing i mean you mentioned big trouble in little china earlier john carpenter is kind of one of my heroes um <laughs> Recent movies, I'm big into the art house horror coming out right now, including Midsummer and Hereditary, Get Out and such. Uh, you know, horror movies are probably where I'm always going to lean first, but I love crime movies as well, like No Country for Old Men. So another Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, there's a theme here. All right, last two. Favorite ice cream? I don't like dessert. What? That's an excellent I'm answer. A weirdo. I don't. I would. I would take meat over any kind of dessert. So I'm going to just write down meat for that answer. Favorite meat. ice cream, I'm going to write down meat. meat. <laughs> I love that so much. 
All right, last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, I'd probably be hanging out on the North Shore of Lake Superior with my family, staring out at the water, going on a hike, something like that. Or I'd be seated, you know, in the center seat, uh, middle row of a movie theater with my family and a big bucket of popcorn and an icy Coke. Uh I've been missing movies lately to get back there. Okay, that's excellent. Ben, Percy, thank you for joining us today. You've said that storytellers should give in to whimsy and that writing is an act of empathy. Thank you for bringing so much of your wisdom and whimsy here today and for giving us some empathy that in the world of starving artists peddling our books from the trunks of our cars, there is, in fact, a writing life out there, a career a person can pursue. For folks listening, uh, you can pick up Ben Percy's novels, including um, The Ninth Medal, The Unfamiliar Garden. Those are the first two books in his Comet series. When's the third coming out? I'm doing the edits right now, so it should be nine months-ish. Nine months, man. All right. Well, get the first two at an indie store near you, and there's lots, actually. The Dark Net, and uh, there are many others. Aspiring writers, you can grab his craft book, Thrill Me. Comic book readers, you can grab The X-Men. And I mean, everything, film watchers, podcast listeners, whatever your medium, Wolverine, type Benjamin Percy into the search bar and you will be regaled. To everyone listening, uh, we're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgru and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.